0: It's Halloween 2001 and the doorbell rings and it's this little kid with a big beautiful smile and an afro and he says can you take me trick-or-treating and I say sure but I wonder where's his family he says his name is Diego but everybody calls him Donnie and he's going to be five in January and I say cool Donnie where's your mom and he kind of shrugs Pretty soon, Donnie starts showing up at our house, and he starts calling our one-year-old son, baby brother. And my husband and I ask each other, where is his family? And he starts to tell us things, like that he lives with his grandma, but she's mean, and he doesn't have a room or a bed of his own, so he sleeps on the couch. So we ask his grandma if he can stay in our guest room sometimes, and she says, I don't care. And when we don't see him for a while, I start to worry. So I go to his school and I ask the principal, how's Donnie doing? Is Donnie okay? And she says, I'm sorry, who are you? And for some reason, I just blurt out, I'm his mom. And she believes me. When Donnie turns 15, his grandma says, I'm gonna give him over to the state. And I say, well, wait, 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 can't he just come live with us? And she says, take him. But it's a huge struggle. Donnie's joined a gang, And he's really getting into trouble. He actually ends up going to juvie. And to be honest, I almost give up on him. Three weeks ago, on January 10th, Donnie showed up at our door with that same big smile. He had just graduated from college a month before, and it was his 24th birthday. He was here to celebrate it with his family.
1: And welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter, a weekly podcast on the art and craft of the personal narrative story. Each week, my partner, Kurt, and I will tackle one topic or answer one question as best we can to help you craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories, true stories, personal stories, grit stories like the one you just heard by Stephanie Rogers, one of the pioneers of this super short personal narrative story form. And we have got six more stories for you that are 99 seconds or less, all true, all personal. The theme is family and friends. We have got stories by Jeremy Credlow, Andrew Shofo, and Katie Knutson and then three more by Dan Boyd, Zach Stewart and Sharon Eisner. 799 second stories. Doesn't get any better. If you have an interest in this stuff, if you want to learn a little more or explore whether that's a 99 second story, like the ones you'll hear today on this episode or a 5 minute story, 10 minute story or longer. Both Kurt and I are offering classes, beginners classes starting in February. I'll include that information in the show notes, so check it out. They're going to be a lot of fun, and you will learn. Also in February, we have a 99-second story slam, the first of season three. So if you're hearing this stuff today and you think, I'd like to check that stuff out, I'd like to hear more stories like this, or maybe even tell one, well, check out the show notes. The link is there. You can learn more, and we would love to have you. All right. All right. Thanks everyone so much for listening and all of your support. Let's dive in.
2: I was 35 years old when I learned that I was a racist. It came as a surprise to me, which isn't how that usually happens, I don't think. It was a warm fall day in Northwest Indiana, and I was standing in my driveway talking with four of my friends, four of my white friends. I knew things were going to go south when my buddy looked over both of his shoulders to see if anyone else was around, before leaning in and asking the rest of us if we wanted to hear a joke. It didn't get awkward when he used the N-word. It got awkward when I told him to stop, that I didn't want to hear it. There was some back and forth, some, come on man, it's just a joke, and some hard feelings when I left the rest of them standing in my driveway. The thing was, I'd never done that before. I'd known all these guys since high school. It wasn't the first racist joke I'd heard them tell, and I'd never had the strength and the courage to stand up and say, enough, I'm not okay with this. I'd fooled myself into believing that because I didn't tell the jokes or use derogatory terms, that I was somehow better than them, that I was part of the solution and not the problem. But I realized in that moment that that's not how any of this works. I take comfort in the words of Maya Angelou, though. Do the best you can until you know better, she said. Then, when you know better, do better.
3: My father was missing the end of his right index finger. He lost it in an industrial accident when he was 16. And growing up, I was fascinated with that digit and the missing digit. And part of the reason I was fascinated was because he would do wonderful tricks with it. Like he could stick it here and it looked like his fingers up his nose. Or he could stick it in a zero and it looked like the same thing. Or if he was out to dinner, sometimes if he was in the right mood, he'd pour ketchup on his plate and he'd call the waiter over and he'd say, this knife is much too sharp. But what was really interesting was how this thing altered his life. He couldn't go to West Point because he was missing his trigger finger. And his graduating class at West Point suffered horrendous casualties in the Korean War. He became addicted to cigarettes while he was getting his finger treated in the hospital because he had to have penicillin, and the guy next to him offered him a cigarette. Once when I was getting older, uh, you know, I was probably in in high school or college, I asked him, hey, do you feel any pain from from that missing finger? And he said to me, you know, sometimes I do. It's really weird, but even though it's missing, I feel the pain. The only time I ever saw my father cry was right before he died, right before he passed away from the cancer that he got from smoking. And we were talking, and he, he looked kind of troubled, and I said, what's wrong? And he just kind of broke down, and he said, I need something for the pain. I just want something for the pain. And that's what I spend my time thinking about these days, how even though something may be gone, it can still cause us a lot of pain.
4: I'm sitting at the table across from my husband on our honeymoon in Italy. The waiter brings me a bowl of three pumpkin raviolis, and I slice into them. This is the first time I have eaten wheat in two years. The pumpkin and wheat and spices mesh together in my mouth and it is heaven. You see, everybody has told me that the wheat in Europe is different than the wheat in America. So if you have allergies here in the US, it won't matter because it's different there. And so I was feasting. Bread for breakfast, pasta whenever I could, big chunks of juicy chocolate cake for about a week. And then we were in the south of France I was covered in a full body rash. I had a sinus infection and a throat so sore that I could barely talk. And instead of going on adventures, the two of us together, my husband adventured alone to pharmacies, asking in a language that he had never studied for medication that would help my nose and my throat and my skin and trying to communicate all the allergies that I have. On the way home, I looked at my husband and I realized that, yeah, I may not have made great food choices on our vacation, but I made the right choice in a partner.
1: Thank you, Jeremy, Andrew, and Katie. Next up, Dan, Zach, and Sharon.
5: This eighth grader, Jenny, races down the steps to the basement where we are all hanging out, ditching class. Tiffany, motherfucking laser, read this. Does it suck? I can't date a boy who sucks at poetry. Tiffany unfolds the paper carefully and then hands it to me. Dan's the reader, he'd be a better judge. I'm precocious. I'm a precocious seventh grader, but I'm not so precocious that I feel comfortable reading poems, let alone critiquing them. Uh, It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It rhymes in some places and not others. So nervous and self-conscious. I notice this poem has been opened and folded over and over as pubescent hands searched its secrets, tried to answer the question, does this suck? Jealous of this boy's bravery, I swallow a knot in my throat and say, I read sci-fi and fantasy novels. I don't know much about poetry, but the thing about this that I can see, the thing that stands out to me is that it's perfect. There aren't any words crossed out. The handwriting is really precise, but you can see from the indentations that whoever wrote this did drafts. So once he had the words, he took the time to put it on a clean sheet of paper. So you got to ask yourself, are you the kind of girl who wants a boy who puts his heart and time into something? And if you are, does it matter if it's good or not? Tiffany squinted. And when Jenny was out of earshot, called me out, it sucked, didn't it?
6: My dad tells me to get in the car. We are getting lunch. We have to talk. I'm 13 and I'm shitting my pants. My dad is six foot two, broad shouldered, a master chief in the Navy. We talked when I needed help with the video game or when we were going to watch NCIS. We didn't talk about heavy shit. We kept it light. What was he going to talk to me about? Did my mom tell him about the time she caught me dancing to Fergalicious alone in my room? Does he know about my internet search history? I'm starting to freak out. As we sit down for lunch, my dad cracks a joke about my mom and I immediately am put at ease. It's something we've always bonded over and I think he knows I'm a little nervous. And then he says, your mom's been asking why you aren't into sports. Oh, of course, this is what we were going to talk about. Why was I so stupid to not think this was the most obvious thing? So as I start to stammer out an excuse, he cuts me off. He says, I don't care if you're into Pokemon or comic books or video games for the rest of your life. I'll get into that because you're my son and I love you. My dad passed away a year later. I never had the time to come out to him, but I'm so grateful for that lunch because I know that he will always be my dad and that he will always love me.
7: I'm looking at a painting of Elvis on velvet with one tear checking down his cheek. I'm seven. I'm in Tijuana, Mexico, and I'm thinking, what does Elvis have to cry about? Dude's got everything going for him, really. Now, in the store, my aunt, my mom, my cousins were all shopping for things, ceramic things. My dad has gone with my sister to find a bathroom and I see outside the store, I see Senorita dolls with flouncy, trouncy red dresses and señores with striped ponchos. And I walk out and I hear $1, $1, $1, $1 and they are selling these dolls and I want one. I turn back to the store to tell my mom that I would like a doll. And I do not see my mom. I do not see the store. I see a lot of stores. I see no crying Elvis. And suddenly I am aware that I am lost in Mexico. And I have a brief glimpse of the rest of my life where my face is on a milk carton. And I am living in a country where I do not understand a word. And I start crying and a woman in a flouncy, trouncy colored dress picks me up. She puts me on her table and I think she is going to sell me for one dollar, one dollar, one dollar. And I cry and suddenly I feel arms around me and I smell leather and pipe smoke and it is my father and I am found. And suddenly I know why Elvis is crying. Maybe he was not found.
1: As always, thanks so much for listening and your support. A special thanks to our storytellers. Stephanie, Jeremy, Andrew, Katie, Dan, Zach, and Sharon. Beautiful work. If you want to learn more about storytelling, both the crafting and the telling of it, check out the show notes. Kurt and I are offering classes starting soon. And we've got a story slam coming up on February 21st. 99 seconds. It just doesn't get any better. That is all for now. Boom.